has just described our encounter here in, in our studio <laughs> as a prison visit. So no, no, like, <laughs> like, the simile is, is important, right? <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's in jail here? Um, um. You know, on the, on the face of it, if you wanted to sum up this book in one sentence, it would be, girl has sex with boss, right? I had to write those chapters in order to get to the true beginning of the book and then have the brutality a bit like Maria Paps, to uh, lop off that beginning. I was really curious to write something where, what happened if everything went right? You know, that's the joy of writing. That's the joy, yeah. joy of being an author. You can you can go for wish fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently, I don't know. Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lappin, and our guests today are four exciting and very different authors. Stephen Camden, Elise Valmorbida, Caroline O'Donoghue, and Molly Flatt. Enjoy. Welcome, Stephen Camden, author of Nobody Real, a YA novel. Or not quite. What would you say? Um, yes, I think I think by by law, Jesus <laughs> says it's a YA novel. It's a, it's a novel about a young adult, two young adults, in fact, and their families around them. So yes, it would it would be on the YA shelves. How old are these almost sort of adults? So Marcy, it, well, they're both the same age. They're both nearly eighteen. Um, they're going to be. It starts at the end of the the second year of sixth form. So it's the last exam. It begins with. And yeah, so they're both their birthdays are in the summer, so it's it's the it's the end of school really. Um, I have to add yeah. that Stephen has just described our encounter here in in our studio <laughs> as a prison visit. So no, no, like <laughs> like the simile is, is important, right? <laughs> it, who's who's in jail here? <laughs> um, um, that's yeah. I was yeah. I was thinking of other things, but you, forgive you, me. You're wearing the t-shirt. So I, well, yeah, it must be you. It's me. It's me. My ankles are chained together. You can't so, see it. So we could imagine that you are an you are an author in jail and being interviewed about the book. Okay, but in okay. fact, method no, that is <laughs> that is not what happened. Tell us a little bit about how this book came about because this book is a I, I have to say it's one of the most imaginative books, YA or not, that I've ever read because oh, wow. there there are characters and then there are characters who yeah. aren't actually real yeah but these unreal characters are almost more real than the real characters amazing how did this happen well, thank you first off for saying that um well i'm my favorite things are the things that feel completely real but with a, a kind of a twist i think about things that i grew up loving like twin peaks or programs like um there's a program called northern exposure which i absolutely loved where it's it was grounded so even if i happened to be you know a dragon It wasn't about the fact that I was a dragon. It was the fact that I had to be at work at ten o'clock and I had things to burn and the villagers to scare and stuff. So it was that that sense of um, real and not real is kind of integral to the story. But also that feeling of not knowing what I want you what you want to do, or having something that you like but it doesn't feel like a viable option. And then everyone around me always felt seemed so sure. You know, there was always a plan. So I just kind of rode the coattails of various people for most of my teens, to be honest, all the way into university. And it was about that thing of, it wasn't until later in life that I kind of tapped in and also acknowledged something that I really loved doing. And we had the, I don't want to say courage, but I had the, 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 the wherewithal to kind of follow it. 
and but they, they, they were feelings I was having way earlier and I just wanted to tell a story about somebody who is wrestling with that same thing and and then make it even more complicated by having a part of a... And being a teen, of yeah. course, is the perfect time to have that Completely. imaginary part of your life, which isn't quite visible. Completely. It's that edge, others, right? Yeah, completely. Not even quite to yourself. Exactly. So who is this imaginary presence in your book? So Marcy, Marcy Baker is, is the... It's the main character, I guess, if you can say that. And Thor Baker is her imaginary friend that she made when she was a lot younger. Um, her mom left her and her father, and her father was or is a kind of uh, bit of an enigma. He's an author himself, and very much in his own world, and kind of retreated into himself when her mom left. And she created this imaginary friend who is, in essence, a combination of certain comic characters that she liked, but as a boy with the arms of a bear, because. Basically, so he can't type. Dad is, dad is always typing. If you've got bare arms and paws, you can't really type. So here is this character who is strong, but can't do the thing that denies me my access to my kind of my, my kind of dad. And then they're, they're together, and they are. He represents the side of her that does the things that she wants always, rather than keeping them kind of contained. And then it gets them not only into trouble, but people get hurt as a result of his actions, and she casts him away. And then that, yeah, that would be the end of it. And then he shows up again um, six years after being cast away, unbeknownst to her that he has actually been watching her and kind of obsessing this whole time. And he is, he's basically the two things that I remember being at, at that age, which are angry and in love. And that's 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 at the same time. Yes, completely. And maybe even not like separately, like they're, they're twined as this one rope in him. And so the struggle is not between two parts of himself. The struggle is acknowledging that that he can be, or he, how do you steer that to some sort of positive effect? He wants to, he loves her, and he wants to help her, but he's also very angry that she doesn't need him. This is just such a brilliant idea, and it's the way it's written. Your 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 dialogue and even just inner thoughts, not just dialogue, but inner thoughts and the the, the narration is absolutely pitch perfect. Thank you so much. And it just sounds like. Um, someone has just said it naturally and you've captured it, but of course you've written it. So um, I must assume that you're very influenced by something else that you do, which is um, spoken word performing. Well, thank you very much. That's Genuinely, that's the best compliment ever because that is what I hope it feels like. I hope it feels like as close to being told a story or even like whoever's voice it is in your mind, just, yeah, the music of, of language is of paramount importance to me, which is why the audio side of things is really exciting. Because um, I love the fact that a book is on your own terms, that you can close it at any time. So there's the pressure is, yeah, it's not there. But but I'm not, I don't just use my mouth when I'm writing dialogue. Everything is out loud, just from description to, and, and then the music of a cut and how long you stay with a certain scene and how you go and then what something is referenced and, you know, the dance of it. I can get more and more pretentious the more I talk about it, but it's the music of that much is very much a a sonic thing to me, and um, I guess yeah, there are parallels. Right? You know, when you think about when I think about film and those kind of yeah. things, it's it's definitely the music of how long this comes in and how much you get of this sound or this tone, and then when you stop. And you also use fonts in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. In this uh, book, you have two different types of fonts, and in the beginning, I wasn't quite sure which was which yeah. and why, and then when you realize. 
you know, the connection and the relationship between them. It's um, really interesting. Amazing. To, to, to stay with. That's what I hope. I yeah. can think, I think yeah. I, what I really like the idea of is, is that thing of um, kind of offering you something mm. Which, which is kind of maybe has questions in it and there's a little, you have to kind of tilt your head as you're kind of reading like, hey, all right. But then if you choose to invest, hopefully the layers become kind of clearer and you, and you become more attached to it and it just feels like you've discovered things as well, you know, like that kind of yeah. gift of it, I hope. That's what I, the kind of thing that I love. I, I felt that it's a very contemporary, very now sort of book, but at the same time, mm. actually not. Yeah. At the same time, it felt very much sort of rooted in an older kind of reality. Yeah. Um, in what way? Can and I, I wouldn't call it retro. Yeah. Um, because retro is actually a word that your character slightly despises <laughs> herself um, and uses ironically, but it is sort of retro. Yeah. It's it's um, there's a kind of yearning I feel for some. For, for life as it used to be and not to be so overwhelmed by how it is now. And I was wondering whether when you meet um, teenagers, high school yeah. kids, whether you come across how they feel about being alive now. Yeah. How well, problematic is it? Well, very much. It's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because that is, in essence, without wanting to, like, you know, shop when that's what I hope my presence is in any form. Is that sense of an, an acknowledgement that we, of where we are, but that not not in the sense of like oh things were better back in my day, but just there's um, people are a little scared of simplicity maybe or a little bit wary of space, and I think basically it's hard it's hard being a teenager, and it, it was hard when I was a teenager, but I would I would argue that it's harder now. I would argue that the, the everything that was intense the volume has been turned up slightly, mm -hmm. in some cases quite a lot. There is there is nowhere to go, you know. Whereas the school they ended, however tumultuous and awful it could have been, home was home. Now there is something beeping and dingling every every two seconds. Mm. You can't go anywhere, you know. Wherever you are, the very thing that is kind of aiding us in one way is trapping us in another. And I think that I feel for them. I feel for any. I feel for anyone who is a teenager right now because everybody is so much more aware of everything. But that, that's not necessarily coming hand in hand with understanding because you still have to live experiences to kind of make things mm. actually land in yourself and make sense. And I think it's so maybe it's I don't think I, I don't kind of want to go into spaces and kind of give the sense that, right, there is a way that things are. Everything is terrible. Let's be this way. It's more just that it's all right. My whole thing is always like the absence of pressure or at least the turning down of pressure where it's like, right, you can choose this or you can choose that. Everything seems like if you don't choose A, it's going to be terrible. Your life is going to fall apart. But that's not what happens, mm. you know, because once you choose A, there are two more. The forks yeah. in the road don't stop. And I think that if you if you kind of buy into the pressure of it, it just makes people unwell. Mm. You know, it makes people really well. And I think, you know, there are so many things or buzzwords or topics of debate at the minute, particularly around, uh, you know, wellness or, or the idea of mental health and pressure and, and these these dialogues are important, but the practical application isn't always there, you know, because it's like, right, okay, so what do I do? Now I'm aware of what's going on, I'm aware that this is what I'm feeling, but what do I do? Well, you, I don't know, you're allowed to do whatever you like, you exactly. know, listen to yourself. And that inner silence and that ability to listen to herself is actually what your character Marcy has. Hopefully, yes. In a, in a lovely way. 
We would love to hear you read. Amazing. Maybe you'd call it perform. No, <laughs> from the book in on the in the prison cell. <laughs> in the prison I'll cell. I'll have to look at the get the cards. Give me the give me the thumbs up. Should I just should I read the? Maybe I could read the. So basically, it, it goes back and forth between Thor and with Marcy, and the bit that I like, I think it's a good introduction, is just when we first meet Marcy, and she's in her last exam, and then somebody shows up. The clock ticks. Ten minutes in, and my page is still empty. All around me, a gym full of people sitting in rows, heads bobbing like a gridded flock of feeding birds, speed scrawling answers to questions we've spent months preparing for. Every few breaths, a head will pop up, like it heard something. The distant call of that great idea, that one quote that could turn forty UCAS points into forty-eight. This is it. Final exam. Six forms. Last supper. Scan the room, mouth everyone's name. Most of us have been at this school since we were eleven. Some of us even went to the same primary school. How many memories do we share? Izzy Maynard, Tolu Clark. How different are mine to yours? Eli Hansen, Hardeep Khan. How does it work? So many versions of everything that happens. Everything that happened. I remember play fights. You remember getting punched. You remember lunchtimes packed with hide and seek. I remember hiding in the craft cupboard and people forgetting about me. We all remember laughing when Simon Harris tripped and threw pink custard over Dicky Mister Page. When you think about it, it's thirteen years. More than two thirds of our lives so far sharing the same space, and after today, most of us probably won't see each other again. We'll say we will, but we won't. Maybe accidentally in town one random summer Saturday. Or five years from now on a train platform at New Street, heading in different directions, or maybe middle age at some badly soundtrack class reunion when we're all swollen or wrinkled or both, crying into our gin and tonics about how we chose the wrong path. Isn't that just a little bit weird? Has anyone else in here even thought about it? Sean is four across and two in front. I watch him scribble, then pause, scribble, then pause, scratching his head, questioning himself whether he's following the right thought. Kara is two across and three in front. Even from behind, the calm in her slender shoulders is clear, prepared, sure, tattooing her future onto the paper, ready for the rest of her life. When she's finished, she'll look back, checking in with me, that things are going to plan. I look down at my page, still empty, still waiting. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know what I want to do. Last chance. My pen tip scratches the blank paper, like a claw. And then I feel you, for the first time in years, watching me, knowing my thoughts. I look up, across the room, and there you are. But where is he, this man for her, who has survived the battles with the Austrians? The valleys have been officially declared a monument to war, and an ossuary like a lighthouse is being built on one of the peaks. But half of all men are dead, or else there wouldn't be enough bones and teeth and skulls to fill it. She must have a wedding this year, or it will never happen. You've got to get married, or you'll end up like that witch in a nightdress, Mama says whenever Maria is excitable or ungrateful.
La Delfina wanders from contra to contra. She belongs to nobody. She sings to the moon like a wild dog. When the light is so bright at night, it's like a cold blue day, and the shadows are sharp as granite, and the rocks glitter. Sometimes she hangs about the chesso in the daytime, muttering obscenities and blasphemies. What if she has the power of a gypsy? It's less dangerous if she sings, so Maria calls out through the wooden walls and asks for a song while her kaka drops meters into the mountain earth. And sometimes La Delfina cooperates. Luzelin de la comare le vola sulle tete, Luzelin spate le alette, e un po' più giù volea volare. The godmother's little bird flew onto her breasts. The little bird beat its little wings. It's a bit further down. He wanted to fly. Maria sews and sews. Hello and welcome to Elise Valmorbida, author of a beautiful novel, The Madonna of the Mountains, published by Faber and chosen as Book of the Month by both Love Reading and Times. Hello. Hello. Lovely to see you here in our studio. Um, and can I just begin by saying I am in love with this novel. This novel doesn't so much progress as it kind of undulates from place to place, from time to time, starting in the 20s um, in a specific area of Italy, which I'm sure you'll tell us more about, and then decade by decade or sometimes a couple of decades later it moves into a different time with your main character ending in the 50s and these moves are gentle but they are very deep and your main character is Maria who when we meet her at the very beginning of the book is only 25 but she feels she is already 25 maybe already too old to be married and her father has just set out to find her and bring her a husband. Can you describe how that first moment became the crucial moment for you to introduce her to the reader? Gosh, I'm still feeling overwhelmed at your lovely description of this undulation. This is such a, a beautiful way of describing the, the movement of the book. And I guess partly why that resonates with me is because I really had a strong sense of the seasons all the way through the book. And so that undulation, that sense of connection with nature and the rhythms of time and also the, the way time is measured by um, the rituals of religion uh, really resonates with me. So I'm still recovering from this lovely description that you've just given me. So I, I didn't actually start the book with her at 25. My very beginning, at the very beginning of the writing of the book, was uh, her birth. And so that was way back in 1890-something. And as often happens with any exploratory work of, of fiction, particularly um, the way I write, which is highly inefficient, I had to write those chapters in order to get to the true beginning of the book and then have the brutality, a bit like Maria Paps, to uh, lop off that beginning. But I needed to write that beginning in order to get to that, that point at which she was 25. Yeah. So the beginning for your reader is already rich with her history. Mm. And it's interesting that you say that you had to cut something away in mm. order to begin at that particular point, mm. because even though it's not there, it is there. It's almost like editing a film. You cut things out, you leave something in, but what you leave in contains what you have taken out. So that's very much the case here. So we, we meet Maria when she is so 
eager mm. to marry and can't wait. Mm. And when she meets the man who um, her father brings back as her future husband, she's elated. Mm -hmm. But how does that marriage really turn out? Well, I think there's not a lot of choice. And even though she has had proposals before, there have been people who have been mutilated, um, damaged, sometimes visibly, sometimes perhaps less visibly, by the First World War. So when she sees her her prospect, her, her proper husband-to-be, her betrothed, she's very, very excited because he appears to be um, the perfect man and very undamaged. And I think in some ways he is actually a very good match for her. But of course, um, you don't know a person when your marriage is arranged in this way. And it's only after the trials and tribulations of living together and dealing with life together that you find out more about the person that you've married. And of course, there's no choice then. A woman in her place and in her time, whatever she did or didn't think of him, she didn't have the luxuries that perhaps we have today where we can actually say, well, this doesn't suit me. I might choose elsewhere or otherwise. For her, the choices are to make the best of it. That's what she does. That's what she does all along. Mm. Um, the entire period that we follow her life from this um, young adulthood to being a mother, a wife, uh, and later on also someone's mistress. Mm -hmm. um, all of this happens during the fascist era in, in Italy. And the background of fascism um, being just almost like a natural part of life mm. in uh, Maria's life and in everyone in her surroundings, mm. it's it's almost too normal mm. when you read it. You 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 wonder what about the resistance? Mm. What about the people who wanted to live differently, who wanted to resist, who wanted to fight? Mm. You sense their presence, but you don't think that someone like Maria could really go beyond her private life to deal with anything bigger than that but and yet she does and yet she is heroic mm. in her own way um, I find that she's very heroic in the way that she manages to fulfill all her obligations mm -hmm. and yet at the same time find her own way towards freedom I am very interested in another character in this book Delfina mm -hmm. who is this um, uh, madwoman uh, although one wonders, is she really a mad woman? Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. You can tell us more. Um, she seems kind of like the opposite of Maria, and yet maybe even something slightly different, maybe something that Maria could have been mm -hmm. had her life turned out differently. Mm -hmm. How did you conceive of that uh, character? Delfina appeared. The way she appears in the book, she appeared in my head, and I could not live without Delfina. Delfina... When I wrote Delfina, it just flowed. She just had to be there. She's everything Maria fears to be. She is homeless. She is uh, wild. She's a disgrace. She uh, certainly is not religious. She's uh, poor. She she lives off nature as she can, when she can. So even food is in scarce supply. God knows what her ethics are. Maria has no idea, doesn't want to know. She's terrifying. She's Delfina in my head, is something like 
the way a Greek chorus works in an ancient Greek play, where yes. she mm-hmm. sometimes comments on the action, she's sometimes part of the action, she sometimes has, has a historical overview, other times she's deeply subjectively uh, enmeshed in the action and doesn't have an overview at all. And she is floridly psychotic, so she mm. is um, in some way, shape and form, she has lost her grip on uh, the normal ways of saying and doing things. And so because she's mm. wild, she can go anywhere and into any interior mm. and she goes up and down the valleys into the towns. So she can see fascism coming even when a very remote mountain community hasn't yet seen the signs of it yet. She can report on things yes. like the factories and the trains. She mm. knows about the news. She knows about the stuff that's happening in the big cities. So that's a kind of angle in, a kind of crazed angle, if you like, that Maria at, at the beginning of the book has no idea of. Several times in the book, you refer to Italy being formed by fighting. Yes. Um, That's a quote from Mussolini. From? It is. Actually. Mm-hmm. So lots of these statements that Mussolini made and his you know, PR department were, were very much embedded in the national psyche. That whole militaristic um, attitude was, was embedded in the culture for, a, if you think about it, he was in power for, you know, mm-hmm. since 1922. And, and it goes on and on and on for decades. Actually, much longer than Hitler. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The idea of leaving Italy and moving to America is um, present, and it's a dream, and it's a fantasy, and it's a possibility. But actually, in the end, the move, th- this dream of, of leaving and moving, turns out to be going to Australia, mm-hmm. not America. So as you, um, I have read that you uh, grew up um, in Australia, in Melbourne, and your heritage is Italian. I was wondering whether this story is something that has a personal connection in any way at all to your life. I think the the researching and the writing of this story goes back deeper into my roots than even I can know. But I did find writing this novel that a lot of it came very, very uh, naturally to me. Of course, that's not to say, you know, there was all the craft and all the work and all the schlep that goes into, you know, know, refining and editing and polishing uh, a story. But I did find a lot of the inspirations for the characters and um, bits and pieces to do with sayings or dialect or tradition. And food. And food. All of that absolutely came came fairly easily to me. And of course, you think you know it all because you've heard it all growing up. And there's nothing like growing up in a migrant family to hear all those stories about this other place that you belong to, these other people that you are. Um, but when you actually come to write a work of fiction or, or non-fiction, the research that goes into it is, is, is vital. And at the end, you generously add Maria's recipes for uh, all of us. Now, where do these recipes come from? Uh, really? Well, the gnocchi, for example, my aunt in Italy, one afternoon, possibly twice, because I probably wasn't a very good <laughs> student, very patiently showed me how to make gnocchi her way. And uh, in classic Italian recipes, you don't put measures and weights on things. It's a handful of this, depends on the size of the potato. You do it by eye, you do it by the seasonal ingredients and how they perform and the quality and texture of you know the ingredients that you're using. This is very much how this book feels, mm. very carefully and exquisitely crafted, but at the same time, it just pulsates with real life. Mm. And it just feels like it just sort of came together, like it just happened. And it made me wonder why... Um, in some cases, it was being described as a commercial work of fiction. To mm-hmm. me, 
this is a book that absolutely transcends boundaries between literary and, and commercial. They make no sense to me. This is just a, a beautiful, beautifully written literary novel with, I would say, commercial appeal because of how perfectly you tell Maria's story and the story of that period. So thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Hello, Caroline O'Donoghue, author of a wonderful debut, Promising Young Women. Hello. I <laughs> love it. I love it. Did you love writing it? I, I did love writing it. Um, it, uh, it sort of came out, the first draft, I was very proud of myself because it came out in this sort of six-month period where I just got it into my head that I was going to write a novel and it all just kind of came out like squeezing a spot at the right time. It all just like came out of me <laughs> and uh, it was all very rushed and, and it felt like a great love affair. Do you know what I mean? Like I was really passionate about it. Um, but then, you know, w once I sold the book and I, I realised, you know, what, what all authors have to eventually realise is that uh, you have to rewrite a lot. So it was a uh, uh, nine, ten, eleven drafts later. I didn't. I wasn't as in love with it, but I am very proud of it today. Promising young women. Mm. Who are they? Well, um, there's, there's very much a reason. I think it could have been promising young woman singular, which would be Jane of the title of the who the main plot is about. But what was really important to me was that it was a plural in that. You know, on the on the face of it, if you wanted to sum up this book in one sentence, it would be girl has sex with boss, right? <laughs> but actually, it's about this entire class of women. It's about her friends. It's about um, and all these other people who are trying to they they have promise, right? They have. But what does that mean? I mean, it means that people are kind of somewhat rooting for them and believe that they have a certain amount of talent that will get them somewhere. We're not really sure where. I feel like in our society we're interested in two kinds of women. We're interested in women who are going to be great. So they're like in their early 20s and their tits are in the right place and we can root for them and all this. And uh, and we're interested in Sheryl Sandberg, who is, you know, the queen of everything. But all those women who live in between those two dichotomies, who live in between promise and fulfilled promise, the women who are growing, the women who are working it out, the women who are sort of messing it up along the way, it almost feels like there's no place for them. Mm -hmm. So Jane, your heroine, yes. um, is um, a young office worker by day. Mm -hmm. She works in advertising, in advertising, in marketing and so on. Um, by night, let's say. Uh, or secretly, yeah. she is an agony aunt on a blog, on a secret blog where her identity is unknown. Mm -hmm. Her name on that blog is Jolly Politely. Yeah. Is it an accident or is it an intentional reference or echo yeah. to Truman Capote's heroine? In it's a very, yeah, very... Yeah, meaningful reference. Yes, it's it's an, in an intentional reference. Yes, it is. So, uh, well, let's really. I'd love to talk about that. So, um, Holly Golightly, mm -hmm. uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yes, is also a promising young woman mm -hmm. in a different era, in a different time, very much using men, but also controlling men yeah. uh, in a certain way. How does that compare with what happens to Jane? I'm so glad that you asked about Breakfast at Tiffany's because nobody has yet. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what I, I love about Breakfast at Tiffany's and definitely my relationship to that film over my life has, I remember watching it as a, a sort of a 16 year old and thinking it was the most like wonderful, romantic, intelligent, 
movie and Audrey Hepburn is obviously so gorgeous and her she's so witty as well she's everything you want to want to be as a woman right like when you watch it as a teenager she's everything that you you aspire to um but then you go back and you watch that movie as an adult woman and her life is profoundly sad do you know what I mean mm-hmm. like the fact that she has all these um like she's a real attachment disorder like she sort of you know, she's got this cat that she can't name because she feels like she has no right to it. And and similarly, she's got this man who lives um, above her that she sort of simultaneously feels is her brother, her lover, but also a perfect stranger. And she'll also write him off and give him the cold shoulder because she's damaged. She's so deeply, deeply damaged. She's also married. She she's also, also married. She has a completely different life somewhere else. She is not who she appears to be. She has a very sad life that she escaped from yeah. to have this one. I don't know if you are talking about the film as well as the book. Yeah. But in the book, um, it's very interesting because the narrator is a very sad man himself. Yes. And he understands her sadness because of that. Um, so the connection between them is between the two of them, between. Uh, yes. The man, the writer, who observes her and becomes very attached to her, um, but not like the other men in her life, um, is fascinating. And I think that's what kind of makes her his yeah. perception of her. With Jane, your heroine, um, by the way, I should add, I yeah. was also really drawn to the idea of a secret agony and well what i really wanted to do with that sort of um online agony and thing like this is you know this is very much not a memoir but one of the things that feels the most autobiographical in this is the fact that jane is somebody who is like she's very vulnerable like she's not important to anyone really at the beginning of the book she kind of has work friends and that's basically her biggest connection in her life and her mother um but she she needs to have a place where she feels important and where she feels like her voice is known um and I, I very much felt that way when I moved to London when I was 21 and uh, I was, you know, doing various different temp jobs in different offices or whatever, doing really like demeaning, like data entry type of work, but um, also running these blogs. I mean, they weren't anonymous. They were very much under my own name, but I might as well have been anonymous because I was nobody. You want a space where you feel valid. Mm. I think there's so much of that that we're not exploring in fiction at the moment, like people who troll people online. Like, what's their story? Why do they need to do that? And um, uh, I, I yeah. think a, a, another a very interesting character, I would say, in your novel is London. How do you feel about London? How did London sort of make it into your book as a character, really? Well, I think... Um, was it Soho more than London as such? Well, definitely, uh, as somebody who's not from England and who I think a lot of people I know um, who are from you know the home counties or whatever, and they spend a lot of their early life going into London in and out for school trips and that kind of thing. Um, but I didn't have that experience because I'm Irish and I, I, the first time I came to London, I was 20, you know. So I definitely had this because I immigrated by myself when I was very young I was 21 when I moved here I didn't have any friends or I didn't have any really any connections at all and um, I spent so I think comfortably the first two years just being confused by things both culturally because of England and you know London on a very specific geographical level like the fact that there are essentially two two map levels of London that you have a tube map and a physical map, both of which are very complicated and sit on top of one another and don't always align, is confusing. Absolutely. And like it is it is not essentially a very welcoming city. Like it is not one of these like famously friendly cities. Like people don't really have time for you. It's really hard to make friends. It's really hard to get into the swing of how competitive it is. And like it's impacted my writing so much. And all I wanted someone who feels so 
lost and vulnerable within the mix of all this that it had to it had to be its own thing and its own character if you will so Jane loses her boyfriend at the very beginning of yeah. the book. It's not quite clear whether she dumped him or he dumped her or whether it was mutual. I think mm-hmm. it was very much a bit of both or a lot of both. Yeah. Um, but she's suddenly alone mm. in this city. And I think that loneliness, that being alone, despite having friends and connections and, and work and being very busy, that is what makes her quite vulnerable. Yes. Um, and when she becomes involved with not the man she originally had a crush on, uh. but a boss at her company, over time, I don't want to give anything away, mm-hmm. uh, but over time she becomes physically ill from it. Yeah. Is he a kind of, so, you know, the the, the topic of sex and power, sex and power in, mm-hmm. in the workplace is, is, is a huge one uh, right now. But what I appreciated in uh, your treatment of it is that yeah. nobody's innocent. Uh, yeah. Choices are made. And she's always asking herself, did I make that choice? What did I do? How did I, f- yeah. how did I end up in this situation? What can I do to get out of it? And it's not easy because one step leads to another. And it becomes more and more and yes. more impossible to extricate yourself from dangerous situations. And the danger is so real and so physical um, that she actually becomes physically ill mm-hmm. uh, from it. Um, her physical illness, I thought, was a very Victorian almost element. In, oh, I'm so glad the, you said that. Book. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe not every author would be, but... Um, I I initially when I set out to write this book I kind of wanted to be like you know the Victorian sort of tradition almost like the Brontes of like the gothic novel of like I actually joked to my editor when I first um, pitched this book to her I said um what if Jane Eyre had a HR department? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre is a workplace romance. That's what it is. Yeah. The workplace romance gone wrong, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I wanted to emulate that sort of like feeling of the building itself turning on you, yourself turning on you. And in the in the first draft of this, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about the first draft because it's so embarrassing. There was so much of her just fainting <laughs> like a Victorian heroine because I was so into that genre. And, yeah. and Daphne du Maurier as well. I had just read My Cousin Rachel, um, which um, I think was a huge influence because... Uh, have you read that book recently? Um, the main character, mm-hmm. he is, you know, is he being poisoned mm-hmm. by his cousin or is he just, you know, does he just have a flu, basically? And he kind of comes in and out of consciousness all the time and he's he thinks he's married her at one point and he completely loses his thread. But, like, because for the reader, Rachel has become such a witch that whether or not she is is almost irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whether or not she actually is poisoning him is not even relevant by the end. And the same thing with Clem. Whether or not he is, like, a warlock draining the life out of her is completely irrelevant. It's because the the physical and mental state of the person, the narrator, is so convincing that it, it's their truth, you know? And it's like, truth is subjective, so... <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Um, I think that this novel will have many interpretations. Um, it is open to many interpretations, many conversations and discussions. And that, I think, is one of uh, an additional reason for loving it, mm. because it's not a black and white kind of story. It's a story that is very rich, nuanced and um I think Audrey Hepburn would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 
Decisions Decisions. This is where I try to give you advice or help with any writing problems you may have. Perhaps you have a dilemma when you're writing a book, perhaps you're writing a story. I'm an editor and I would love to help you solve those problems if I can. I asked on Twitter if anyone would like to email us any questions. And because this is our first Decisions Decisions segment, we actually, and I will be completely honest with you, received only one single request for advice. This comes from Tina in Uxbridge. And Tina asks, It seems the only things I can write these days are haiku. Even works of this tiny scale are open to so much editing and reworking that I cannot imagine I'll ever be satisfied with one chapter of prose, let alone an entire novel. How can I learn to tell a story and get over the idea that every sentence is a puzzle with a single perfect solution that can never be realized? And Tina sends this example of her haiku. I'm startled to find a clay pig in my garden lured in by the storm. Well, Tina, actually, first of all, your haiku is wonderful and it's funny. It's light as haiku is supposed to be. Uh, it's extremely original as an image and it has a kind of irony and a kind of poetic irony in it. So I would be very happy with that haiku if I were you. Um, and I certainly enjoyed reading it. But your question is, how can you be satisfied with the idea that no, no sentence you ever write will be perfect? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't matter whether you're writing a haiku, a one-sentence thing, or a two-sentence thing, or a story, or a novel, because it's not about the perfection of the sentence. It's about the story that you want to tell. So if you have a story to tell, which is a short story or, you know, a topic for a novel, then you just go ahead and do it. And then, only then, once you've, in, once you've gotten into the flow, then think about the sentences and fixing them and improving them, but not before you've actually given yourself the chance to write the story. Because the writing has to happen naturally and not by trying to fix every little mistake on the way. So I'm sure that with your haiku, it maybe came out as it did, or maybe you played with it, maybe you fixed it, but it was an image in your mind and you wrote it as it came to you. And that's exactly how it would feel with anything bigger than that. So the story is the main thing. The thing that you want to write about is the main thing. The fiddling with the details comes next. And I'm telling you not to worry about that until much, much later. I hope that helps. I'm Molly Flatt. Um, I'm the author of The Charmed Life of Alex Moore, published by Pan Macmillan. As the man flew backwards, he already knew that he was dead. He could feel the blast spreading through his flesh, hot and fast, imploding his organs with something like joy. Seven million lights wheeled around him in a spectacular farewell show, and the taste of copper and ozone flooded his mouth. He was still alive when he hit the ground, alive enough to feel the back of his head bounce, alive enough to watch the last of the lights retreat inside the walls until he was staring into black.
that was wrong. That shouldn't be happening. There would be consequences to that, consequences he should be around to fix. There was so much still left for him to do, so much he had never had time to say. All the seconds he had spent on ridiculous worries, on arguments that didn't matter and people he didn't love, scattered before him like sand. And he longed to sweep up the grains and cram them back into his body's brittle hourglass. The chill of the stone was seeping through his flesh, the metallic warmth leaching out of the atmosphere. He heard the scuffle of boots, then the rasp of panicked breath as someone knelt beside his face. He had to tell them. He had to give them a chance, even if he couldn't, to salvage something from this almighty mess. So with the last of his breath, he spoke the words. Three words. And as his lungs rattled to a halt, and his neurons winked out like the lights that had so swiftly, catastrophically fled, he just about had time to think two final thoughts. First, he wondered what would happen to the woman. And then he hoped with all his failing heart that his dear, beloved, pig-headed, bloody son wouldn't do anything stupid. Molly Flatt, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. You have written your debut novel called The Charmed Life of Alex Moore. And it's a roller coaster adventure for grown-ups, in my opinion. Is that a good description? I love that description. I'm always very bad at describing the book, so I'm going to steal your elevator pitch and use it. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Did you think of it as an adventure when you wrote it? Yeah, I um, I genuinely struggled to kind of find ways to describe it to, you know, agents or publishers or just, you know, friends and family to begin with. I think, you know, adventure was really important to me. I... You know, in in my early days of writing, I used to write, you know, very literary, melancholy meditations on life. And actually, I realised I'm really a plotty sort of writer. I just love getting swept away by plot and a sense of adventure. And I think sometimes you feel like you get that a bit less as you grow up and you read books. Um, you know, I used to feel I had to read more meditative novels, whereas actually I just love things happening. <laughs> a good story. This yeah. is this is such a good story that you you start, you begin and you do not want to stop reading because so much happens and it's all very very surprising and mm -hmm. what happens in the beginning connects beautifully with something that is revealed much later on but initially it just happens. You don't know why, but it's set up sort of like a movie scene and I really like that. Um so, let's talk about Alex. Yeah. Who is she? She is very successful mm. when the book begins, but she wasn't always so. So six months ago, she was very different to who she is now. What's happened yeah. to her? Well, who is she? You know, that's the heart of the book, really, isn't it? Um, you know, the whole story is Alex grappling with who she's become, because as you said, she's had this very abrupt change about six months before the book starts. Um, and for me, that was a real piece of wish fulfillment. I think the, the classic kind of uh, writer's adage is that a book starts when you have a conflict, when you have a problem, when someone's, you know, someone starts in their life and then things start falling apart. But I was really curious to write something where, what happened if everything went right? You know, that's the joy of writing. That's the joy, yeah. joy of being an author. You can, you can go for wish fulfillment. So I was like, 
you know, what if all your dreams started coming true? And not just materially, although yes, you know, Alex has has left a dead-end job, which he's been in for years, and finally had this idea for a startup that becomes incredibly successful. She's on the front page of magazines. She's uh, She's got status. She's... Uh, um, you know, starting to build a bit of an empire. Um, but, you know, emotionally as well, you know, the things that seem to hold her back in the past and and make her kind of a little bit timid and a little bit um, incapable of following through on all of her many ideas, um, those seem to have fallen away. So that, that really is the kind of question in your mind at the at the beginning of the book and and and, and as it goes along and you know it was it was quite a hard challenge though as a writer to portray a central character who has changed and so you know you get this sense that Alex doesn't really know what's happened to her and who she is i mean you know, not all of the changes are good you know she's not an entirely likable character at the start of the book um but i suppose that goes back to the plottiness as well hopefully you like enough that you want to find out what's happened. Exactly. And her relationship with her fiancé is very interesting because he seems to like the old Alex, Mm. the one who wasn't so successful. He thinks she was a different person, the person he actually liked, not this one, not the driven sort of crazy one. Is this about the dilemmas that women, that working successful women face today? Is this what gave you the impetus to to address this? I think what's particularly interesting now is that we're bombarded with images of success and with a kind of expectation that we all have to achieve a certain personal best at all times. You know, we're surrounded by Instagram images, by Pinterest boards with inspirational quotes. There's, you know, so much rhetoric about following our dreams and knowing our thing and 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 beautiful visual illustrations of kind of what success looks like. But actually, what success feels like or what that feels like can be very different. And I think, I hope, that's what's reflected at the beginning of the book, that yes, we're getting this wish fulfillment that Alex is essentially living the social media dream. Um, but it feels weird. You know, it doesn't quite feel authentic. Um, and, you know, in Alex's case, it's partly because something big has happened to her that she hasn't really realised and it's a little bit unnatural. Um, but I think that feeling is quite common. You know, there's definitely a sense of... Uh, the, the feelings I drew on when I was describing that was the sense of imposter syndrome, that she feels like, you know, she's kind of hiding a secret, that that she's, she's always skating above a kind of void and she's waiting for someone to spot it. Um... And someone does spot it, which, you know, helps helps galvanise the action. But I think absolutely the, the book shows Alex's journey about questioning the cost of that success and having to redefine success for herself. You know, once you get there and you have it and you realise you kind of don't really want it, where do you go from there, really? And there's a split there in your book between mm. um, what's real and what's very contemporary, what's mm. very now, what's what seems real due mm. to this very super fast world that we live in mm. um, and what actually is real. Mm. And what's interesting is that when you create that other dimension mm. where that thing happens that yeah. I'm not going to reveal, but I don't it's know. It's so hard to, talking about this book without giving away spoilers. Without the other, yeah, the other, the other layer that is peeled back where you discover something about But we have to say something. So I will say that she discovers a dimension where a library exists, which is 
connected to people's personal stories and their memories. Absolutely. And when that gets messed up, yeah. something bad can happen, something very bad can happen, yeah. but that's a separate story. But just the concept, we can talk mm. about the concept. For sure. Right? So how on earth did you come up with the idea of a library housing all of our life stories and memories? Really good question. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, this, the, the you know, apo- apologize for my language because I swear a lot, but the bloody library had been haunting me for, I mean, for decades even. I, you know, I, I've been writing riffs on and stories about this library for a long time. I suppose, you know, in, so, you know, the library exists in my head and hopefully in the book now, you know, I want readers to believe that it actually exists on this island um, in the, the, the Orkney archipelago. And islands and kind of islands with secrets, I suppose, is something that's always been in my imagination. I loved, you know, um, when I did English literature at university, I kind of was one of about three people in the entire university who studied Arthurian literature. (laughs) I've always loved, you know, those kind of myths, British myths. um, And, you know, a lot of those involve, you know, islands and and, and secrets that, that, that kind of merge history and magic or myth. Um, so that idea has been haunting me for years and years and years. And I suppose as I grew up and became more interested in neurology and psychology and consciousness and self-determination, self-help, the idea about how much can we control our own brains and our own identities and our own behaviour patterns, the two things kind of merged. Um, and I just think it also took me an awfully long time to be skilled enough or or, or capable of writing about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, even when I committed to this book itself, you know, it took me a good seven years of writing and ripping up entire drafts and starting again. And the idea was always the same. A lot of the characters were there, but it was like I had to grow up in my life and in my writing craft, it always (laughs) sounds terribly grand, um, to be able to handle it because it's such a massive idea and I had to figure out all the physics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like I didn't... And, and, and the visuals. The visuals, 100%. The visuals, you know, it went through many, many iterations. At one point it was totally sealed off from, you know, our world, but now it just exists there, but it's a secret. Um, you know, at one point it was very, very cod medieval and now I try and make it really believable that it's it's part of the world. Um, but also just, you know, the way it worked, I... I didn't want to suggest that free will doesn't exist, for example, but I did want to suggest that we're all connected. And that's all. So, you know, I think, you know, I drove my husband crazy. I remember there there being a point when I'd kind of hit a real snarl where I couldn't figure out the mechanics of it. And he said, but you do realise you're trying to explain the universe. You're trying to explain human consciousness, darling, and I'm not entirely sure you're going to be able to do that. And that actually really helped unlock it for me because I realised there was always going to have to be a level of mystery in the library, just as there is in the world. You know, the people who are the custodians of the library and and live around it, they actually don't know how it works either because otherwise I would have had to have solved the main problems of consciousness and quantum mechanics, which I'm, I'm quantum physics. I'm not quite there yet. Well, well actually, um, I have to say, if we can believe in a, mm. in a sort of imagination-driven way the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. We can completely believe this and other things. Mm. And reading this, I'm thinking, okay, so this is 
made up. Hats yeah. off to Molly for having this kind of imagination, which, by the way, your mother told me at your launch, you've always had as well. <laughs> you <laughs> have always been nuts, yeah. <laughs> but um, it felt to me like it could be something that could actually exist in a different form, much yeah. more abstract, not so yeah. visual. But yes, our oh, stories come from somewhere. That's so good to hear, Eleanor. That's what, you know, I just wanted... Our stories are connected. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it is an allegory, but I did want readers to, at some part of them, part of them think, you know, what if? To really imagine, you know, to feel like it was possible. Because quite frankly, you know, the universe is magic. Science is magic that has been, yeah. you know, explained. And I'm, I'm, I'm an absolute believer in science and, and rationality and the enlightenment. But, you know, we still don't know. So I'm not saying that things are supernatural in any way. I'm saying they're 100% natural and that the natural world is magic enough. You know? Thank you. Thank you. So exciting. <laughs> Lucy Skulls, welcome again with your book post for the end of summer and autumn. Oh, well, it's lovely to be here again, Eleanor. Thank you for having me back. Um, I would like to talk about three September titles today, um, all by women again. This is my, <laughs> my repeated you, pattern. You, you like books by women. I do. We've I've, established that. We have established that I read far more books by women than men. Um, so the three books I'd like to talk about are, um, one is a novella, one is a novel and one is a non-fiction. So they're all quite different. The first one, a novella, is Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss, um, which is being published by Granta. And I think Sarah Moss is one of the country's best fiction writers at the moment. I think, um, I mean, she is considered to be uh, very accomplished, but I also think she should be more well-known than she is. Um, this is her first novella. So it's quite a short novel and it's incredibly gripping. Um, I don't want to give too much of it away because it builds to a, a very um, a sort of creepy and disturbing um, finish. But what I will say is it's set in one of those strange historical reenactments where a young a teenage girl is living with her mother, her father, and I think she has a young brother, if I remember correctly as well. And her father is um, reenacting a Iron Age village mm. and so he's got some students living there with him and so we get the uh, the life of the girl in this present day that is also kind of steeped in the past mm. and within that is entwined the story of a bog girl from back in the Iron Age and everything becomes a little bit weird and there's a lot of interesting things about sort of gender roles um, and uh, abuse within families and things like that so it's quite a dark read but it's it's very what good. What exactly is a bog girl? A bog girl is a, well, in this, I don't know if this is the historical correct de definition, but she's a girl who they found in the bog. So oh. many, many years later, she sort of died in the bog. You know, they've kind of pulled out bog people at mm. various boggy parts of the world <laughs> from the past. Yeah. Um, so that's the first one. Um, then the novel is called Normal People by Sally Rooney, which is being published by Faber. Um, and Sally Rooney's first novel, Conversation with Friends, was considered one of sort of last year's publishing highlights. Um, and Rooney is a very young um, Irish writer, um, so young, we have to be slightly jealous, I think, of her talents. But she is an astonishing writer, particularly, I think, for somebody so young. And the second novel is um, ostensibly it's about a relationship between um, a young man and um, a young woman. And they are 
um, in their late teens when they first meet and the uh, the younger they go to the same school and the young girl comes from quite a wealthy family um, in the town in which they live in Ireland and the young man comes from a less wealthy family. His mother is, um, she works as a cleaner for the for the, um, the girl. And this, the novel charts their relationship over a period of quite a few years and the sort of ups and downs they have in it. And it's such a wonderful, I mean, Rooney just writes with such a clarity. There's none of that sort of, I don't know. There's just no kind of weight to what she's said, what, what to the prose. She just kind of strips it all bare, yes. and it's so clear and it's so precise. It's very assured. It's very assured. I mean, astonishingly so. I think. Um, so, and, who are the normal people at the title? All of them? Uh, well, no. A lot of the question is about. I wish I was a more normal person than this. But obviously, what we probably learn by the end of it is nobody's normal or everyone's abnormal. That kind of thing. Um, but you know. I think it's just it's a very it's a very assured and very kind of um, intricate portrait of this relationship between two people and all, and the things that sort of go unsaid and what you can maybe miss where you think that you think that you've made yourself very clear but somebody else has completely misconstrued the situation um, and she does that with a real lightness of touch that had me sort of feeling incredibly distraught about these characters sort of missing what each other are trying to you know what they're trying to tell each other at various points um, and really rooting for them in a way that I don't often root for characters. And this so. novel came very quickly it on has the heels come, of the first one. It has come very do you quickly. See, do you see um, uh, a connection between the two? Um, I mean, there's a connection in as much as they are... I mean, she's talking about human relationships in both and she's talking about the intricacies of human relationships. Um, I don't know. if, In an interesting way, I think if I had... If I wasn't sure, I might say this was... Even an early, I might suggest that this would be written, had might have been written earlier than conversations with friends. Not because it's it's less, um, not because it works. Uh, I keep using the word assured, but not because it's it's sort of less competent at all. They're they're both very different things, but equally competent. Um, perhaps it's because the protagonists are a bit younger. So mm-hmm. in conversations with friends, the ones are slightly older, it feels just sort of. No. So maybe maybe like an author's prequel could be. I'd be very mm. interested to know in which order they were written. So let's leave that with that with a with a question mark. Exactly. Could it be? Yes. Um, and the final book I want to talk about is Mrs. Gaskell and Me by Nell Stevens. Um, and this is a hard book to explain. It's nonfiction. Um, it is a memoir, but it's a memoir of a. And I, it's not really. You can't. You could possibly describe it as a biblio memoir because it is about a relationship with books but it's also more about a relationship with a author um so the relationship between Nell Stevens the author of this novel uh, sorry this book and um Mrs Gaskell who was the famous um 19th century writer um and Nell Stevens people might be aware of from her first book Bleaker House which also did very interesting things with genre because it was a book about not writing a novel so she went off to Bleaker Island um in the Falklands in order to write a novel and instead the end result was this book, Bleaker House, about not writing a novel. And so this time around, she's turned to her own life again and she's written about um, the years in which she was working on her PhD. And for her PhD, she was writing about um, a group of artists um, and writers who were living in Rome in the mid-19th century, of which Mrs. Gaskell went to visit. Um, So there was a connection there. And at this point, um, Nell Stevens was also embarking on a sort of transatlantic romance of her own with a man in the in the States. Um, and so what the book does is it charts her own life during these periods, 
but also Mrs. Gaskell's during the period in which she was in Rome and a relationship that she had, a sort of non-consummated on every level, but a very romantic relationship with um, a a man called Charles Eliot Norton. Um, And I just thought it was wonderful. I read this book in sort of one setting. I think I just love the way that, that Stevens writes. She's got a, I don't know, she's so honest about her own life and she has a way of turning it into such a good narrative and such a good story and making these connections between her own existence and Mrs. Gaskell's that are not at all obvious. Um, so does it sort of take place in two different time periods as well? Uh, are they interconnected? They're not interconnected in the usual I mean, I don't even know what the usual sense would be. I suppose um, you have chapters that are that are set in the what was then the sort of present, mm. so within Stephen's life, and then you have these um, uh, sort of intervening chapters that that take you right into Mrs. Gaskell's mm. life, as if you're sort of reading a novel about mm. Mrs. Gaskell. Um, and I just thought it was wonderful. I knew very little about Mrs. Gaskell beforehand. Based so. on what you said, I'm just rooting for the author herself to consummate her relationship with the American man, but don't give it away just in case it happens in the book. Oh, yes. Know. Well, yeah, very different, <laughs> the, very different relationships going on. So, but you know, they're just, yeah, I thought it was wonderful. Thank you very much. That was Lucy Skull's book post for the autumn. My pick this month is The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner published by Jonathan Cape. I'm in awe of this novel. It reads like a grainy photographic portrait of the toughest side of life in contemporary America, seen through the story of 29-year-old Romy Hall, who is serving not one, but two consecutive life sentences for the murder of her stalker. Outside her California County Jail is the life she knew in San Francisco, the strip club where she worked as a lap dancer, the childhood with her emotionally absent mother, drugs, addiction, but also freedom to live outside all conventions and her five-year-old son Jackson. Inside the jail is the rest of her life, with the rich cast of characters not even the excellent Netflix series Orange is the New Black can prepare us for. Romy's narrative voice has such penetrating intelligence and humour, I sometimes forgot the utter tragedy of her life. This is a novel about discovering evil and living with it. It's unflinchingly real, and every scene is so heart-stoppingly, masterfully written, it is simply unforgettable. The Mars Room has just been long-listed for this year's Man Booker Prize, and I really hope to see it on the shortlist and would urge everyone to read it. Here's my favourite passage. I said everything was fine, but nothing was. The life was being sucked out of me, The problem was not moral. It was nothing to do with morality. These men dimmed my glow, made me numb to touch and angry. I gave and got something in exchange, but it was never enough. I extracted from the wallets, which was how I thought of the men as walking wallets. As much as I possibly could, the knowledge that it was not a fair exchange coated me in a certain film. Something brewed in me over the years I worked at the Mars Room, sitting on laps deep into this flawed exchange. This thing in me brewed and foamed, and when I directed it, a decision that was never made, instead instincts took over, that was it. Lives of Women and Girls 
our conversations today happen to focus on new, vibrant fiction about unusual women's lives, a feisty British teenager and her imaginary friend, a peasant wife and mother in 1920s fascist Italy, a heartbroken London office worker who falls for her dangerous boss, a young entrepreneur whose sudden success is a mystery, and a single mother serving a double life sentence in a Californian jail. Thank you to our guests, Stephen Camden, Elise Valmorbida, Caroline O'Donoghue, Molly Flatt, and critic Lucy Scholes. This episode of the Love Reading Podcast was produced by Alex Raymond, with music composed by Alex Raymond. Please be in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our blog at www.lovereading.co.uk. You can also email us on podcast at lovereading.co.uk. I'm Elena Lappin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>